Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 30th day of April. It is Saturday. Normally, we tell you what the Sunday drop will be, what sermon we're going to be posting. I'll save that for tomorrow. That means that I don't give you any preview. You'll just have to check out the DDP if you want a behind-the-scenes preview of the sermon, but the sermon will post. I do that because today's essay edition. You can find our essay in its written form at paulwhiteministries.com. We present this essay for you every month on the final day of the month, so you can always scroll back through wherever you get your podcasts to hear the previous ones. If you prefer audio only of all of our material and you would like a quick and easy website to find that, we have an audio only website called deeperdaily.com. And now, the essay edition for April 2022. My original first paragraph of this essay read like a rah-rah motivational speech one might expect to find in a business seminar held in a hotel conference room. I didn't do that on purpose. I just started writing about the way I figure God sees you and it got a little sappy and mushy. So I abandoned that track so I could give you some backstory. No worries. There is some rah-rah coming up. The reason for my excitement about who you are is sourced in a lot of things I've learned over the years about the heart of our loving Father and the great price He paid for all of us. But more specifically, it has to do with a verse that I've become quite taken with as of late. Like most of you, I've read the Bible through countless times, so I've come across every verse more than once. But sometimes, I stumble across one and swear that it wasn't there the last time I read that passage. Such is the result of moving down the road a bit. Things look different when we have other experiences by which to compare them. Revelation 21 contains John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He hears that God's intention is to dwell on earth with man and that he will make all things new. Part of that process includes burning with fire all that is wicked and contrary to God, a process he calls the second death. Then John is shown the bride, the wife of the Lamb, a statement meant to be quite jarring as sheep procreate, but no one considers a pair of sheep to be husband and wife. Just as the Lamb is not a real sheep, the bride is not a real woman, two facts that should possibly indicate that the lake of fire is not a real lake, the new earth is not a real planet, and the lack of a sea does not mean God hates oceans. In other words, Revelation 21, not unlike the rest of the book, is dripping with symbolism. If that isn't obvious at this point, maybe it will be when we actually see the Lamb's bride. It's not another sheep or even a woman, but rather a city. The heavenly Jerusalem is shown descending from God with twelve gates, each fashioned from a giant pearl and guarded by an angel. The city is a perfect cube. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. These descriptions and measurements are further proof of symbolism, as pearls that large would require a batch of oysters beyond our imagination, and a 1,500-mile city would extend off the planet, beyond the stratosphere, and hundreds of miles farther than the modern International Space Station. But all of that is prelude for purposes of this essay. Those symbols could have a host of meanings, and they probably do. And anywhere we land could be debated from multiple perspectives. 
These verses have meant a combination of things to me in my lifetime, ranging from literalism to symbolism and a mixture of both. But the verse I had always missed has really been working on me for some time now. Revelation 21:24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The light spoken of is the glory of the Lamb, which shines in place of the missing sun or moon. And I understand if you missed the shocking element in this verse. It's easy to overlook because we're still trying to process how this city can exist without a sun or a moon. But we know that the Lamb as light is another allegory illustrating Jesus as the light of the world. With that, we sort of stall out and we stumble through the 24th verse, missing the most glaring and jarring verse of them all. Here we are, at the supposed end of things, where God has brought a city, a new city, to a new earth, has wiped all tears from the eyes, eliminated death, and burned the evil with fire. And there are kings, leaders, if you will, from the nations of the earth who are invited into the city of God, and they bring their glory with them. They walk right in with what makes them who they are, their personal lives and personalities, on full display. These kings of the earth are not described as any sort of religious leaders, and they are obviously not unclean, or according to verse 27, they wouldn't be allowed in. But Revelation 22 says the leaves on the trees within the city are for the healing of the nations. So maybe the kings are there to take some healing back to their countries and their cultures. In any case, let's not bury the lead. There is glory in humanity. If a chapter describing the New Jerusalem, the allegorical bride of Christ, includes the entrance of natural mortal kings in all their natural glory, then we should consider that at the end of the Bible, God is still impressed with his creation and is doing all he can to provide them with what they need. And this next part is why I think I missed it. Mankind is not all depraved and hopeless. They do indeed have beauty and something to offer. God has instituted a fire pit that burns off all that does not belong, and yet here are secular kings bringing something of value into the city of God, which tells me that there is something gorgeous and valuable inside of every single human being on the planet. All that have lived, are living, or ever will live, that is breathtaking. For those of us raised beneath the booming tones of total depravity, it is a shock to the spiritual system to imagine that there is anything of value in fallen man. We cut our teeth on the original sin argument that doomed all of humanity, babies alike, to an eternal torture chamber, not due to their own failings, but those of the first human whom they never met. So let us rewrite that first paragraph, the one you did not hear, now that you have some context for my excitement. You carry glory. You are unique. You are a mystery. Because these things are true, your value is limitless. You need reminded of this value from time to time, as all generations have, across time. Jesus asked his audience if they were more valuable than many sparrows. If God provided for the birds, would he not provide for his own? They needed to hear of their value as they had forgotten it, or maybe they had never known it at all. If value is established by the buyer, not the seller, then lean to the buyer who knows all. In the world, we're being sold. 
sold a bill of goods, sold a lie, sold for parts. In our Heavenly Father, we are being bought, bought out of the auction block of sin, out of the hold of Satan, out of our past and our fear. The buyer has put such a high price on you that he gave his only son so that you might be free. Are you not more valuable than many sparrows? Not only are you valuable, but you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You contain a spark of the divine. You have your father's eyes. There is something within you so powerful, so majestic, that once it encounters the divine love of God, it tends to blossom into joy and peace and an irrational love of your neighbor. It is there waiting. It is glory. You are a mystery, a sort of divine mystery. You are not a problem to be solved, a puzzle to be worked out, a stranger to be shunned. The church and ministers may have treated you like someone to fix. We are terribly guilty of this, as we have often conflated our call to proclaim good news with the job of the Messiah, who actually transforms. Our hearts were in the right place, but our understanding is darkened. We cannot fix whatever ails you. That is Christ's prerogative. But we can walk this road with you and be fascinated in the discovery of the mystery that is you. If we can learn to acknowledge, first, that mankind contains glory, and that, second, we are called to help find it and celebrate it, then the gospel can become a universal proclamation of, The King has come. If the kings of the earth, and actually the people themselves, according to verse 26, bring their glory into the city, then there must be something of value within the people. And these are not some special breeds of human. They are what is outside the city, outside the church, if you will. It could be that Revelation is prompting us to find value in those on the outside rather than only preferring those on the inside. As we said before, nothing unclean will enter. Therefore, whatever should remain after the purge of fire will remain. I leave that purge of fire to the Christ who stands with the fan in his hand to thoroughly purge his floor. If he can walk through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then he can walk through the fire with me. What was burned off of them was what bound them, what they did not need, and what held them back. And so shall the burning do in me and in you. Whatever should go will go. Whatever is left is the glory I share with Jesus and the glory he put within me when he fashioned me. He that loves that glory in me loves that glory in you. You are valuable and prized. Do not forget it. Grace to you.